Chapter 10 of Series Runaway and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lillis. Series Runaway and Other Essays by Alice Maynell. Chapter 10. Addresses. Not free from some ignominious attendance upon the opinion of the world is he who too consciously withdraws his affairs from its judgments. He is indebted to the public. He is at least indebted to it for the fact that there is, yonder, without, a public. Lacking this excluded multitude, his fastidiousness would have no subject, and his singularity no contrast. He would, in his grosser moods, have nothing to refuse, and nothing, in his finer, to ignore. He, at any rate, is one, and the rest are numerous. They minister to him popular errors. But if they are nothing else in regard to himself, they are many. If he must have distinction, it is there on easy terms. He is one. Well for him if he does not contract the heavier debt shouldered by the man who owes to the unknown, unnamed, and unaccounted his pleasure in their conjectured or implicit envy, who conceives the jealousy they may have covertly to endure, enjoys it, and thus silently begins and ends within his own morosity the story of his base advantage. Vanity has indignity as its underside. And how shall even the pleasure in beauty be altogether without it? For since beauty, like other human things, is comparative, how shall the praise or the admiration thereof be free from, at least, some reference to the unbeautiful, or from some allusion to the less beautiful? Yet this, if inevitable, is little. It may be negligible. The triumph of beauty is all but innocent. It is where no beauty is in question that lurks the unconfessed appeal to envy. That appeal is not an appeal to admiration. It lacks what is the genial part of egoism. For who, except perhaps a recent writer of articles on society in America, really admires a man for living in the approved part of Boston? The vanity of addresses is as frequent with us on the western side of the Atlantic. It is a vanity without that single apology for vanity, gaiety of heart. The first things that are, in London, sacrificed to it are the beautiful day and the facing of the sky. There are some amongst us whose wives have constrained them to dwell underground for love of an address. Modern and foolish is that contempt for daylight. To the simple, day is beautiful, and beautiful as day, a happy proverb. Over all color, flesh, aspect, surface, manifestation of vitality, dwells one certain dominance. And if one, vigilant for the dues of his vicegerent, should ask us whose is the image in superscription, we reply, the sun's. The London air shortens and clips those beams, and yet leaves daylight the finest thing we know beauty of artificial lights is in our streets at night, but their chief beauty is when, just before night, they adorn the day. The late daylight honors them when it so easily and sweetly subdues and overcomes them, giving to the electric lamp, to the taper, to the hearth fire, and to the spark, a loveliness not their own. With the unpublished desire to be envied, whereto here and there amongst us is sacrificed the sky, abides the desire for an object of unconfessed contempt. Both are contrary to that more authentic, that essential solitariness wherein a few men have the grace to live, and wherein all men are compelled to die. Both are unpublished even now, even in our days, when it costs men so little to manifest the effrontery of their opinions. The difference between our worldliness and the new worldliness is chiefly that we are apt to remove, by a little space, the distinction brought about by riches, to put it back, to interpose between it and our actual life a generation or two, an education or two. Obviously it was riches that made the class differences, if not now, then a little time ago. 
therefore the new england citizen should not be reproved by us for anything except his too great candor a social guide-book to some city of the republic is in my hands i note how the very names of the streets take a sound of veneration or of cheerful derision from the writer's pen it is evident that the names are almost enough they have an expression he is like a naive teller of humorous antidotes who cannot keep his own smiles in order till he have done this social writer has scorn as an author should and he wrecks it upon parishes he turns me a phrase with the northern end of a town and makes an epigram of the southern he caps a sarcasm with an address in truth we too might write social guidebooks to the same effect had we the same simplicity it is to be thought that we too hold an address be it a good one so closely that if fortune should see fit to snatch it from us she must needs do so with violence such unseemly violence in this as in other transactions is ours in the clinging and not hers in the taking for equal is the force of fortune and steady is her grasp whether she despoil the great of their noble things or strip the mean of things ignoble whether she takes from the clutching or the yielding hand strange are the little traps laid by the londoner so as to capture an address by the hem if he may you would think a good address to be of all blessings the most stationary and one to be either gained or missed and no two ways about it but not so you shall see it waylaid at the angles of squares with no slight exercise of skill delayed entreated detained entangled intricately caught persuaded to round a corner prolonged beyond all probability pursued one address there will in the future be for us and few will visit there it will bear the number of a narrow house may it avow its poverty and be poor for the obscure inhabitant in frigid humility shall have no thought nor eye askance upon the multitude End of chapter 10